3: Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Sarlick. And a very good
1: afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now we're beginning, of course, with Brexit. Interesting day. EU and UK negotiators holding an emergency meeting in London. We understand the European Union thinks it does have a case for legal action against the UK over its plans to breach the withdrawal agreement. Now, essentially, the agreement ensures that there will be no hard border on the island of Ireland. And many say this new revision would put that at risk.
3: And that comes amid outrage from MPs on all sides and several European politicians as well. We heard from Ireland's Prime Minister Micheál Martin. He says it risks damaging the EU trade talks.
2: Trust has been eroded. Tension has been created. Doubts have been created. Um,
1: And that's not conducive uh, to solid negotiations. And Scotland's First Minister Nicola Sturgeon also objected, saying it's going to allow the UK government to set rules on state aid and goods travelling between Northern Ireland and Great Britain.
3: This bill is an
1: abomination on almost every level. I mean, firstly, it breaks international law. The government has admitted that. It makes the prospect of a hard border in Ireland all the more likely. But it is also a no-holds-barred full-frontal assault on devolution. Well, for more, we're joined by a brace of Bloomberg editors, uh, the Brexit editor, Ed Evans, and our senior executive editor, David Merritt. So, gentlemen, let's start, David, with you. This came about in part because the government clearly felt that what it had agreed to, it had agreed to, doesn't now fit the ground as it stands. And is that because, essentially, the, the Brexit talks have run into the dirt?
2: Well, it is extraordinary, isn't it? The admission now from the government, and you know, we had Downing Street trying to justify this Uh, this extraordinary move yesterday, saying that, well, this was not like any other treaty. and In fact, it was put together in a bit of a rush um, last year. And what the Prime Minister at the time, if you recall, referred to an oven-ready deal that was a brilliant um, outcome for Britain actually contains all these ambiguities and now this legislation is necessary to unpick that and to, in their words, preserve um, you know, the, the fortunes of the people of Northern Ireland. So an extraordinary admission, really, that well everything that we were told at the end of last year, and remember on which Boris Johnson fought that election campaign, uh, wasn't quite um, how it was presented um, at the time. And now they're having to row back and introduce this legislation and the extraordinary admission that they're willing to break uh, international law and, of course, cause this huge uh, Ferrari. But of course, we've got to realise that there's a calculation here as well. It doesn't look like it was a slip of the tongue by that minister to say that this is going to break the law. They do perhaps know what they're doing here, creating this controversy. Perhaps it's a negotiating tactic. Um, who knows? Um, but uh, it has certainly caused an enormous row um, and right at this crucial moment where we need an outcome to these thoughts. We need a resolution if we're going to get a deal by the end of the year.
3: All right, then. Um, and, Edward, the next move today is emergency talks, then, between Michael Gove and Marishevchevich from the EU. They're supposed to have quite a good relationship, but is this really going to pass the things over?
4: Uh, we will have to see what, the, what the, how they how they get on, but you can expect Sierkiewicz to ask Gove for an explanation of just what the British government is trying to do here. It certainly looks like a negotiating tactic. They're trying to give Brussels essentially a choice do you give Britain a deal that is acceptable to Johnson's party, uh, or do you put at risk the carefully uh, crafted uh, withdrawal agreement and re- jeopardise the border uh, in Northern Ireland? Um, and it's very clearly a, a, a very harmful tactic by the British government very late on in the day, uh, and a sign of just how uh, these talks and relationships between the two sides have broken down the other thing to watch for of course will be the round of trade talks uh, that are going on uh, this week in london uh, they'll break up this afternoon you, you should expect to hear from michelle barnier afterwards uh you know, those are you know crucial if britain is to avoid tariffs uh, and disruption uh, to the economy at the end of the year uh, and look very much at risk at this point
1: And Ed, I mean, what's the legal side to this? Because we we come in on the basis that the British government's claiming or asserting uh, quite boldly that it is breaking international law. Now we hear that the EU sees a way of presenting a case of suing the British government. I suppose the question is, how would they sue? Where would they sue? Well, that's a
4: very interesting question. We're into uh, very uh, unknown uh, legal territory here. There are terms under the withdrawal agreement, and the EU believes it has grounds on to sue uh, the UK, uh, presumably with its own courts, uh, for breaking the terms of the agreement. I think it'd be very difficult. I think, you know, the legal experts we've spoken to, it's going to be very difficult to mount a challenge in the UK courts. You, you may remember Johnson's got form uh, for provoking legal challenges. He got stopped by the Supreme Court from provoking Parliament last year. And um, and the other thing, to stress, is it's not unknown for the British government in history to break international law. I mean, this this has yeah you know, this has happened in the you know, governments have done this in the past. And what they're talking about is a very specific part where they're talking about rewriting uh, the, what the withdrawal agreement said on customs paperwork for goods crossing between Northern Ireland and Great Britain, and determining which goods will be liable for tariffs and how the state aid rules will work. Now, those are three really, really sensitive areas uh, for the EU, and you can see that that the government has picked them very, very deliberately.
3: So there's the legal side to this, but then there's also the political ramifications. And one of those we heard overnight was from the US, Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, saying that she wouldn't give or there wouldn't be congressional approval for a US-UK trade deal if peace in Northern Ireland were threatened. Uh, David, how real is this threat coming from across the Atlantic?
2: Well, it is, I mean, clearly very uh, real threat coming from Nancy Pelosi herself. Of course, um, it does rather depend who's in control uh, of Congress after, uh, and, of course, the White House uh, after the election. But, you know, the Good Friday Agreement, as I think um, uh, Pelosi said, is, is I think her phrase was treasured by the American people. And anything that looks like it's going to wreck it um, is going to come in for some fierce criticism that side of the Atlantic. And, of course, this big prize of a U.S. trade deal, that's what... Uh, the Johnson government really wants. That's a very totemic thing. It shows uh, Britain moving forward after Brexit. Um, but, you know, as I said, Mr. Trump has said that this trade deal, and of course, he's on opposite sides from Mrs. Pelosi, uh, that he really wants to do that big trade deal. So, you know, if he's successful uh, in November, um, you can still probably expect those talks to uh, to kick off.
1: So, Ed, what, what about those trade talks? I mean, it, we, we hear a lot about trade talks generally and what the UK might be able to find the other side of Brexit, but it does now look as if there's a huge web of doubt spreading. Yes, I think
4: you know, the, the, the first deal they need to get is the one with the European Union. And the, the, the significant thing here is that throughout this week, this controversy has been going on, but Barnier and Frost are still talking. And I think what you know we're watching for is only sign that the EU uh, or either side really walk away at this point. And it, you know, for, for all the row, for all the politics of this, they are still going on talking. It's in neither side's interest to walk away from this. Neither of them wants to be blamed. Um, you know, the British government want to be able to pursue it, to portray it uh, as the Europeans walking away. Uh, the EU is determined to avoid that. Um, so, you know, you'll be very interested. You know, is this the moment that the talks break up? Is this the moment that the talks go on, but in fact, we've hit the sand and nothing is going to happen? Um, or, just possibly, is this the great noise, the great argument, the great dramatic convention of Brexit? We have a great bust up, and then you get a deal.
3: All right. And, and David, I've got to bring you full circle to where we started talking about uh, the threats to the union. In terms of the Good Friday Agreement specifically, Is there a risk then that it could be spoiled, it could be sort of broken down as a result of this move?
2: Well, of course, the DUP, uh, the Ulster Unionists, are rather in favour of this move. So, of course, it depends who you speak with. And the point about the Good Friday Agreement was that it achieved finally a compromise um, on both sides of the uh, troubles in Northern Ireland. So the DUP, of course, hated the original Northern Ireland protocol um, and said they couldn't back it at the time. Mr Johnson ignored them. This is obviously um, helpful to their cause. So, again, but then look at the fury from the Irish side uh, today at this suggestion. And, of course, the American comments that I've I've talked about is it is very provocative um, and, uh, you know, it's going to cause a lot more angst. You know, Northern Ireland hadn't had a government for many years. That has managed to be reinstated. But, um, that is all under threat um, if the government is not able uh, to broker this compromise. So, you know, that is one. you heard Nicola Sturgeon there referring it to as well. And I think, you know, Scotland is a huge issue uh, in this and their reactions to it, um, talking about the assault on the on devolution, um and uh, you know taking away powers from the devolved governments you know scotland is a huge question for mr johnson uh, as he goes into next year with the Scottish elections trying to deny nicola sturgeon her independence referendum any moves like this you've got to believe is going to inflame or increase the calls for uh, that second referendum vote in scotland and then in the future the entire uh, united kingdom is therefore at risk and does mr johnson want that to be his legacy um on top of brexit
1: Well, Ed, let me finish with you, if I may, just say, all this is going on now. At the end of this week, beginning of next, will we be in a clearer position as far as Britain's future is concerned?
4: Uh, Potentially not. Uh, In fact, more than likely not. Um, One thing we've learned with Brexit, these things go down to the wire. The the deadline to watch really, I think, is going to be the October 15th summit of uh, EU leaders. That's the deadline where both sides now want to get a deal on paperwork. I think this week, we, most, we might get a sense that the talks are dead in the water, uh, whether yeah. they formally, uh, I'd say formally walks away is an, another matter. Um, but, you know, we will see, we will know, you know by the end of the week, really, is this, are these talks worth going on? Or are we going to be preparing for, for No Deal on December 31st?
0: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com TechSF. Let's
3: have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. And Roger, we kick off with a bit more news around the Oxford vaccine.
1: Yes, AstraZeneca. We remember they had a bit of a pause. Well, they say they're still aiming to release the COVID vaccine by the end of the year. Earlier in the week, the pharma giant halted the trials of the so-called Oxford vaccine when a participant came down with an unexplained illness. The CEO, Pascal Sorio, has said he doesn't know what condition the patient developed or indeed how long the trial is going to be paused for.
3: Yeah, well, uh, one report says the the condition is transverse myelitis, which is apparently an inflammation of the spinal cord. Sounds pretty grim. Uh, But then we have some test and trace news from Scotland. Their new contact tracing app has gone live today. It's called Protect Scotland. It uses Bluetooth as the previous incarnations in England and elsewhere have talked about doing. So it alerts you if if you've been in contact for a prolonged period of time with someone who later on goes on to test positive for COVID-19. Up until now, that's all been done manually. And the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, understandably urging as many people as possible to get involved. Uh, More than 100 people already have downloaded it. 100,000, I think you'll see. Sorry, 100,000,
1: yeah. 100 100 wouldn't be too impressive. Um, (laughs) One thing that's definitely not impressive is what's happening in British business, because one in five UK companies is a so-called zombie. That's with profits only just covering debt interest payments. Now, that's all coming from a survey by the conservative think tank Onward. Onward says the Chancellor should relax the rules on repayment of virus debts, warning that post-pandemic economic recovery is going to be hampered by Quote crippling levels of corporate debt. Onward says borrowing since March to cover the crisis threatens to push more than four percent of companies into technical insolvency, thereby endangering the jobs of almost two million people.
3: Yeah, it's a tricky on that because if you are a little bit more lax. Where's that money going to come from? Bit of a balancing act for the Treasury. And then we have the UK's first Citizens Assembly come out with some results. An interesting political experiment. Uh, they're calling on the government to increase a frequent flyer tax, or to introduce a frequent flyer tax, I should say, uh, phase out polluting SUVs and ban cars from city centres as ways of dealing with climate change. This is a government-backed group of 108 Ordinary people who've got together, talk about these things. They've published a report to MPs after weeks of discussions. MPs are saying that the report offers a unique insight. The campaign group Extinction Rebellion saying it didn't go far enough. But I feel like, as a political move in this country to be using citizens' assemblies, it's a nice change, isn't it? And it's something that I think might have been useful during the whole. Brexit conversation when nobody could seemingly agree on anything.
1: Yes, well, citizens' assemblies we will see where they go. They seem to be a new tool of democracy in some forms. But let's talk about a sort of virus that isn't really in focus as much as it might be. Used to be, of course. I'm talking about the computer virus. That's rather fallen out of the public discourse. But the working-from-home environments made us all much more reliant on cyber connections, and they are vulnerable and increasingly from state actors as well as criminal hackers. In politics, as concern about the extent that such state actors can interfere with the democratic process well one person who knows all about this is kieran martin until a few weeks ago he was head of the government's national cyber security center he's now professor of practice in the management of public organizations at the blavatnik school of government at oxford university He joins us now kieran good morning thanks for being with us has the current covid crisis do you think increased our vulnerability to hacks
5: Good morning, Roger. Thanks for having me. I think it's changed our vulnerability. I would be hesitant to say it's increased it, it's made it different. But we've had so much to worry about this year with real human uh, viruses and infections and with an economic crisis that I don't want to scare people that some sort of digital catastrophe is going to come along as well because of the pandemic. I think actually, you know, if you talk to any risk management specialist, a very large scale shift unplanned shift done in a matter of days is very risky, so when organizations started working from home very suddenly, I think there was a huge moment of risk and actually we 've come through it pretty pretty well. Organizations did do good practice they issued uh, they issued their people with decent i t and sensible working practices If you were connecting from a home device, you got good guidance and uh, companies did things like implemented virtual private networks, which make connections safer and so forth so we haven 't seen sort of rampant increase in attacks on companies as a result of the viruses. What we have seen, though, is cyber attackers preying on fear. So criminals have moved away from doing tax refund scans and stuff like that towards setting up fake sites for coronavirus tests and PPE or setting up um, fake alerts for government uh, schemes or or indeed government penalties, and I myself got uh, well, um, uh, got sent up uh, an attempt to scam me into giving away uh, personal details. So there's more coronavirus-themed scams. And when I was in government, the National Cybersecurity Centre was able to take hundreds of thousands of them down. And then I think in terms of the major nation-state threats you've already mentioned in your previous story, um, things like the Oxford vaccine, and as I sit here in the University of Oxford now, I think that major state adversaries like uh, Russia and so forth, who previously might have been more interested in energy and finance and so forth, are now looking at some things like vaccines, and we have to try to make sure that we protect those critical national assets.
3: Have we seen any of those attempts so far from state actors, or is this sort of a, a risk that is ever present?
5: I think we have seen, it's both. We have seen um, attempts, and it is an ever-present one. So when I was still in government in July, we, along with the Americans and the Canadians, publicly gave evidence... Uh, put evidence in the public domain of Russian attempts to steal uh, vaccines. And U.S. colleagues have talked about uh, Chinese attempts to uh, steal vaccine research in in the U.S. As far as the U.K. is concerned, to the best of my knowledge, none of the attempts have been successful in in undermining uh, the uh, research. But I think we will expect, we must expect that, you know, the UK is good at medical research. It's good at vaccine research. It's one of the leaders in the race to develop the vaccine. We, will, we can expect the most sophisticated attackers in the world to be, to be trying to get after it.
1: But apart from the the search for a vaccine, and obviously that is uh, something that that I guess state actors would particularly want to get involved with, what about the democratic process? What about government operations? I mean, to what extent are they vulnerable, the government apparatus and the democratic apparatus, to these kind of attacks?
5: Well, I think since i found five to seven years ago, we've seen Russia in particular take an interest in undermining stability in Western countries like the uh, UK. And I think um, we've taken that extremely uh, seriously. I don't think that there's any clear evidence of successful interference in um, democratic processes in the UK. And I think the fundamentals of the electoral system, the counting of votes, the electoral registers and so forth, um, have been uh, subjected to a huge amount of security improvements and, 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 and vigilance. And I think we're looking at two types of attacks. One is actually sort of messing around with the electoral uh, process itself, perhaps you know attacking uh, electoral laws, perhaps stealing information, putting it into the public domain. Then there's a separate but related issue of disinformation, where people basically make up lies and try to circulate them in large scale on the, on the internet. That's a different problem in a free speech country and it requires a different approach. It requires the big social media platforms to take action to try and take this down. It requires over time better ways of verifying the sorts of um, information is this a real person or is it a bot? Has someone paid for this information? Where did it come from? And I think there's more to do in that disinformation uh, space to protect the integrity of a democratic system.
3: And what about China? Because, I mean, this is a country where relations, I think it's fair to say, have frayed quite significantly with the UK over the last few months. What is the risk level like of some sort of attack, either at a state level or lower from from Beijing?
5: Well, China has been a constant. Um cyber attacker against the UK and countries like the UK for two decades. and primarily it's been about gaining economic advantage, stealing intellectual property, to make money more quickly, and uh, so on. And I think we've had some successes in countering that. The Chinese are now uh, perhaps lower volume, higher sophistication attackers against um uh, against the UK, but they're still unacceptable. Uh, Practices and so again, the UK government called out and published details of a huge Chinese cyber attack against the corporate West in uh, December uh, 2018. So again, we need to be constantly vigilant. There is then another issue about like strategic technological competition with. China. How much do we buy from China? How much is there a sort of you know Eastern based uh, technical technological supply chain? How much is there a Western based one? And to what extent are the two of them in, uh, uh, to what extent are the two of them in competition? I think across the West in the 2020s we're going to have to move a bit towards a little bit of decoupling and moving away from the very integrated supply chain. I think the US have taken some very aggressive measures in that respect, and the UK will have to uh, 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 adapt to that. I don't think it'll ever be possible or desirable to completely disentangle ourselves from a global uh, internet and a global technological supply chain. But we have to be very, very careful about what we let into the uh, country and the way we manage the risks of it.
1: Kieran, uh, something that you've been writing about, which has seized quite a lot of attention, is about the risk from viruses that may, I guess, come from state actors or from criminal hackers, but that then do more than they were intended to do and actually escape, become rogue, I suppose, would be one way of putting it, and could do an enormous amount of damage. Just, just give us a picture of that.
5: Well, I'm glad you raised that because I think it is interesting, isn't it, as you said at the start, that These computer weapons are called viruses, and I don't think that's an accident that that term stuck. It's not like a missile where you launch something and it has an end point and it leaves a crater. These are viruses that hop and look for a host, and they can keep going, so they can... Get out of control. And I think it's important to understand that. In my time in government, heading the National Cybersecurity Centre, the scariest time was the summer of 2017, where we had a North Korean state backed uh, attack with a virus known as WannaCry, which went, it was an attempt to steal money, but it went way beyond the intent of its attackers. And it went through the national health service the german railway platform signaling system and so on and a month later a russian attack and you know these are one of the most sophisticated attackers in the world on ukraine ended up um hitting a chocolate factory in tasmania so i think we do have to worry about so i'm glad you mentioned that and i'm glad that point received some attention i think we do have to worry about how to control access to these cyber tools because they need to be used responsibly, they need to be used by people who know what they're doing. There is a place for aggressive cyber action in a controlled way, but we need to make sure yeah. that reckless actors have, a less, have, have, have very little access to these types of um, tools.
1: Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.
0: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street,